All right, my friends, welcome back to another episode of the Build Show Podcast. That's right, my weekly time to get together with you guys and go deep. I got a terrific guest today and a really fun topic. You know, over the years, as a builder, I'm sure you feel the same way, we get inundated by marketing, by data sheets, by experts telling us to do this or not do that. So much so that sometimes there's some anxiety that goes along with using a new product or changing methods or whatever it is, anything that you might do that's different than the way you've done it, such that over the years, I've reached out to various experts, various resources to try and figure out, hey, if, if I do this, if I make this change, uh, you know, is there any negatives? Is there any downsides? Is there anything that I don't know about that I should know about? So on the Build Show today, we're going to explore that particular topic. And with me today is a guest uh, that you may or may not have heard of before. His name's Peter Yost. He's probably uh, a dozen or so years older than me. And I look up to Peter as one of those OG building science guys who's been in the industry for enough decades, has seen enough failures, uh, has written enough articles that I really see him as an incredible expert. Now, if you're a follower of the Unbuild It podcast, which, by the way, is on Build Show Network, you probably know Peter Yost. Uh, he and Jake and Steve do an amazing weekly podcast. But if you don't know Peter, let's review his chops a little bit. Uh, he is a former uh, Building Science Corporation uh, employee. He's one of the very first people that worked with Joe Stebrick back in the, uh, I will have to ask him, I expect 80s or 90s. Worked there for a long, long time working on building failures, what happened, what went wrong. Uh, he also was a professor at Yale for a long time, uh, wrote for Building Green back in the days when I was consuming every blog possible. It was Peter's blog <laughs> that I was reading, along with many other experts. So this is this is a guest who has lots of experience, and we're going to be specifically asking him about this topic of, hey, how do we test things? In fact, he has this funny saying that, uh, that I kind of know in the industry as wingnut testing. I kind of think of that as backyard testing. So we're going to jump in with Peter. Uh, in just a second. With that, with that being said, today's build show all about wingnut testing. Let's get going. All right, guys, before we jump on with Peter, I want to say a big thanks to our podcast sponsors today. Uh, that's Rockwool and Polyguard. So first off, if you don't know Rockwool, this is an insulation product that's very different than most of the products in the marketplace. You know, when I first learned uh, about Rockwool, uh, I remember seeing them in a trade show years ago where they had this booth uh, at IBS where they were showing Rockwell insulation with a flame right on it, like a butane torch blowing right on it. And I thought, wow, I've never seen anything like that, an insulation that won't catch fire literally with a flame on it. And then I started learning about, oh, it actually is vapor open, which makes a lot of sense in cold climates. It has a host of other benefits. Uh, fantastic insulation. I've used a ton of it over years. And they're really one of our oldest Build Show sponsors. So big thanks to Rockwell for sponsoring. And speaking of oldest sponsors, literally the oldest sponsor from the Build Show is Polyguard. Uh, when I was first starting to make YouTube videos in like 2008, I did it for several years where it was just a one-off, post a video once a month. But in about 2013 or so, maybe 10 years ago now, I said, you know, I think I'm actually going to start publishing a video a week. And I thought, gosh, how am I going to be able to afford this? This is kind of expensive to, to have a pro crew kind of help me make decent videos because I realized, you know, people are watching these and my potential clients are watching them. I should, I should probably up the quality of my videos rather than just taking my flip video camera out. 
So I reached out to Polyguard because I was using this product that there was called Alumaflash. Uh, they've now rebranded that to UV240, but very bomber commercial products. And I said to them, hey, guys, I already like your products. I already use them. Would you give me like $15,000 a year uh, to help me shoot these videos? And they're like, gosh, it's a lot of money. But yeah, I can see the power. I mean, Matt, your videos are getting like a thousand views every video. Uh, yeah, we, you know, I think we could probably spend that money. So here we are, like almost a decade later. They've been the OG sponsor. They've never dropped me, <laughs> even though my rates have gone up, my crew's gotten bigger, uh, all those things. And to this day, I don't know if you saw my video I just published with them. Actually, it's publishing today. So by the time you listen to this, it'll be a month later. But uh, I did a whole video on UV240, and I made this analogy of, uh, you know, as long as our houses are kept dry, our houses last a long, long time. Uh, you know, your dining room table, I made the analogy of a dining room table. If that dining room table is kept in my dining room in good conditions, uh, meaning the HVAC system's on and it's not wet and it's not leaking into my house, that dining room table could be a Ming Dynasty table and be passed on for centuries. On the other hand, if I take that dining room table and set it outside in the weather, uh, how long is it going to last? Not very long, right? Uh, my friend David Nicastro says, if it can't dry, it's going to die. And that's true with our houses. You know, if, if uh, our houses were kept dry, uh, well, then they're going to be fine. And in a modern house, if water leaks in, there's not that drying mechanism like there was in the houses of the 20s or 30s or 40s that were relatively leaky, that were vapor open, all wood construction, but also were pretty energy intensive because when the wind blew, it whipped through the walls and uh, meaning we had a lot of heat to dry those houses out. Today, we use very little heat, but we also don't have much of a mechanism to dry if water leaks in. So that being said, Polyguard makes this incredibly bomber product that's really intended for just the south, climate zones 1 through 3A, they say, which is a Luma Flash, now called UV240. Absolutely killer peel-and-stick product that will really allow you to do a bomber job of an air and water barrier. And that's the same product I've been using now for over a decade on most of my builds, especially my really high exposure houses. So anyways, big thanks to Polyguard. And with that being said, let's jump into Peter, who's been waiting in the wings, no pun intended for my wingnut friend. Peter, uh, this is a video and an audio podcast. And did I see that you might have had a wingnut testing mascot hat to wear? You know, I just couldn't resist the opportunity. Now, what you can see is this is a quite it's been stressed a lot right the ears are bent down you know wing nuts it's a tough job you know uh, so so for anyone who's not watching the podcast and listening peter has literally like a giant wing nut with with the words wing nut on it uh and where does and it's politically correct matt because it's got a left wing and a right wing <laughs> Uh, I mean, good houses cut across both party idols. That's what I like about what we talk about, Peter. There's right. no, there's nothing controversial about it. Peter, how did this whole wingnut testing uh, start with you and define the term wingnut testing for us? <laughs> yeah, so we picked the name wingnut actually because uh, we kind of didn't know what we were doing. There was a couple of us, uh, you know, building professionals in the Brattleboro, Vermont area. Um, and part of it was we thought, well, you know, we probably are going to make some product manufacturers unhappy eventually. So why don't we pick a name like who would sue a wingnut? I mean, <laughs> it's just it just doesn't make any sense. So it was it was kind of a legal strategy. I love to it. use that term. 
Because um, no one would ever know who you are. They would just they would just find wingnut testing and try and sue them, right? I guess so, yeah. <laughs> um, the way it came about was I was working on curriculum for the NEHB, and it was on building science and building performance. And when we uh, started to do the two-day trainings at IBS, this is quite a few years ago now, probably like 2010-ish, okay. maybe 2011, um, I was in the middle of this two-day training and a guy stands up in the back and he says, hey, look, you're talking about these buildings that are like going to last for 100 years or 200 years because we build them right. And um, what I don't understand is that all of the control layers, you know, the air control layer and the water control layer, they're relying upon sealants and tapes that are buried in the assemblies. How long do these tapes and sealants last? I was up at the front of the class thinking, oh, man, I have no freaking idea how long this stuff lasts. What a great question. So, kind of got caught with my pants down, and I went home, and I thought, I've got to start better understanding how we test these materials. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's a lot of deference to uh, ASTM, the American Society for Testing of Materials, but there's all kinds of standards. John Straub, by the way, calls ASTM instead of uh, American Society for Testing Materials. He says it's... Another stupid test method is what it stands for. Um, I've heard that. That's hilarious. But that's a good segue because um, almost all of the standardized tests that manufacturers can use are under ideal conditions in a laboratory. And right. so the wing nut was all about, you know, we get, we got to stress these materials with what actually happens on the job site and, and then in the environment in which the materials are working. So it was really trying to do field testing yeah. or benchtop testing with common, you know, metrics and not getting too complicated. And uh, there's actually a whole blog series on both uh, Green Building Advisor and Building Green, because I wrote for both for a number of years about different wingnut materials that we tested. But it started with pressure sensitive adhesive tapes hmm. and sealants because okay. we're so dependent on them. Yeah, and back then, you know, Huber Zip System, for instance, which utilizes a pressure-sensitive adhesive, was f relatively new in the market, right? Now it's been on for 20-plus years, but then it only been on for several years. And I know uh, builders like me were thinking, huh, you know, uh, should I be dependent on tape? I mean, how long have you yeah. seen duct tape last on the job? I mean, sure, it sticks great for the first couple weeks, or maybe months, but eventually it's going to peel off. So how do I know that this tape won't do the same? So talk to me about that very first kind of wingnut test. What, what did you do and, and maybe what were some of your findings? Yeah. So um, we started with trying to mimic the stresses that the tapes see. And in the standardized testing, you know, there's the inline pull, there's a 90 degree pull, there's a 180 pull. So we were trying to pick a way of testing them with uh, little expense that mimicked one or more of the uh, ASTM standards. Hmm. So we literally took tape, put it on typical substrates, and then loaded it with about two pound weights. And um, the interesting thing is we protected it from seeing UV and from seeing actual water because it was behind a weather resistant barrier or behind the cladding, it wouldn't see uh, ultraviolet light and water. Um, and we started to keep track of when the tapes let go. Huh. 
And the first real aha was we had a, uh, a data logger for humidity and temperature. And every time one of the tapes let go, it was associated with a significant change in either the temperature or the relative humidity or both. Oh, fascinating. So it's when you stress the materials that you get, that you, you push the, the system. Um, and we were testing, you know, uh, asphaltic membranes. We were testing butyl tapes and mm -hmm. acrylic tapes. We didn't have any silicone tapes at the time. They're not really used much in particularly residential construction, but we started to pick up patterns that, you know, the acrylics did better at different temperatures, greater range. They also tolerated moisture changes. And the thing about the moisture changes too, is that um, everything's moving. The temperature of the tape and moisture content is changing. The substrates are changing. Mm -hmm. So um, some of this research also was the result of the um, builder guild that we had in Brattleboro, where the architects and builders were saying, we, can you give us one tape that does it all? Hmm. Um, so, you know, the magic bullet. Right. And uh, because, you know, some of the companies have four, five, six different tapes for different applications. And, you know, that's that's tough hmm. to stock all six of those as opposed to, can I just pick one tape? Right. So we're kind of looking for the best tape overall um, in terms of its performance and its price, frankly. And what did you find? Any uh, any tapes? Any categories? Any uh, anything you're willing to share with us on on that very first one? Yeah, the 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 biggest thing was that um, the tapes that performed or the adhesives that performed the best through a full range of conditions were the acrylics. Mm -hmm. And so the the first to be have a problem with moisture content and temperature are the asphaltic yep. uh, membranes like ice and water shield. They just really have a hard time with those conditions. Um, and then the butyls perform better than the asphaltic, but the acrylics performed at the top. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, you could say I'm biased, but um, the tape that we found that sort of for the price and for the range of conditions, the zip tape was pretty bloody good. Pretty amazing. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, the qu same question you had, um, it's got to stick because we're not going to be able to evaluate it once we cover it over with cladding. Yep. And so, you know, you need something where the bond is durable. Mm -hmm. uh, Peter, I don't know if you heard the uh, quote that I said right before you came on, but I had this, I love this old quote from David Nicastro, who I think of as a contemporary of yours, you know, maybe 10, 12 years older than me, who's been around the block, seen a lot of failures. David says, if it can't dry, it's going to die. And that's really a reference to wood-based structure of houses that if they get wet, they need to be able to dry or, or they're going to rot. But uh, that same guy, David Nicastro, ran for a long time, and I think still does, runs the uh, University of Texas Construction Durability Lab, uh, which is like less than a mile from my office where I'm podcasting. And I remember- Oh, is that right? Yeah, like 2010-ish, around the same time you were doing that wingnut testing, he was doing a weather barrier test yeah. rack yeah. that he has, and it's li literally, I've walked right by it, it's by my office, it's still out there, where he took all these different types of weather barriers from sheet goods to fluid applied, to standard tar paper uh, and Huber zip system, put them up on these racks, facing the southern uh, exposure in Austin, Texas, and then yeah. left them out, 
and he covered them at the UV exposure limit per the manufacturer's recs. And then the re- and he covered half half that amount of the display. And then the other half he left go. Yeah. And it was the first time that I had seen zip system sheathing and tape exposed for multiple years. And the time I saw it in 2010 had been out for, I don't know, maybe four or five years at that time. Mm-hmm. And most of the products were in shreds, you know, like a bunch of the fluid applieds were bare. You could barely even tell what they were because they were so shredded by the UV rays. Yeah. Uh, you know, a lot of the a lot of the um, uh, kind of house wraps that are plastic type house wraps gone. The UV rays just destroyed them, shredded them. However, the zip system was not quite as bright green anymore, but mm-hmm. s- the tape still stuck tenaciously in the facer. Looked to me like it was still doing its job, uh, protecting that wood uh, core shockingly well. And that was the first time that I'd really seen that type of uh, testing. Now you've gone on to do other wing nut testing beyond that first PSA test too, right? Pressure sensitive yeah. adhesives. Yeah, I kind of made a little list of the stuff that I've done. Um, you know, after the tapes, um, I took a look at uh, negative side waterproofings in basements. So this is where you apply the water- waterproofing in a in a retrofit. You know, if you start new construction, the waterproofing goes on the outside of the foundation. But if you live in a building mm. where you don't where it didn't have that coating, can you successfully put a, uh, a waterproofing on the inside or what's called the negative side? And it's the negative side because on the outside, the water pressure pushes the material against the concrete. But if the water gets into the concrete and the waterproofing is on the inside of the uh, uh, concrete wall uh, in the foundation, it's pushing the, uh, the waterproofing off of the substrate. Mm. Um, so it's a whole different mechanical problem with that and uh you know i was same thing matt i when i get questions that i can't answer i got to figure out well what do i need to do to try to better understand the issue and when i did trainings for remodelers you you could count on every single time sometime during the three or four hours somebody's going to raise their hand and say hey can you put waterproofing on the inside (laughs) of a foundation and um so there's a really good book on concrete that i got um a copy of through the Yale library because I was teaching at the time. And I just learned a lot about concrete and uh, how it works. And the, the key to negative side waterproofing is that um, the crystalline worms work the best because they actually grow into the concrete matrix. Hmm. So they, they, they do their own crystal formation in the concrete matrix. So they're attached. So even if there's actual hydrostatic pressure, you can't push that waterproofing off because it's become an integral part of the structure of the concrete. Whereas the elastomeric materials, they can't bond into the matrix because they're not crystals. Interesting. Um, Here's the trade-off though. If it's crystalline and you get subsequent concrete movement, the crack transmits, right? Mm -hmm. With the elastomeric, it tolerates movement, but it, it isn't, grown into the concrete so what we would really be cool is if we had a combo uh crystalline elastomeric material that could grow the crystals in but when something moved it could tolerate the movement is there such Uh, a thing no no we don't have anything that that can do that yet um but you know it was fascinating the question that came up during the uh remodeling session i thought i don't know which ones work 
So I developed a whole series of testing of um, different types of uh, uh, interior waterproofings and learned a bunch and then wrote about each of the experiments. So wow, what was uh, the what's the uh, is there any takeaway you can tell us now in in the uh, kind of executive summary on that one? Yeah, you know, the most popular one is the the HydroLock, you know, you can get at Home Depot. Mm-hmm. And that's that's a coating. It's not crystalline. And so it it works as long as you don't have hydrostatic pressure. Okay. And so it tolerates some water moving into the concrete, but um, it will not tolerate when the concrete gets really loaded and particularly if there's hydrostatic pressure, whereas the crystalline ones, um, they actually grow into the concrete and they do um, keep the water out as long as you don't get cracks. So, you know, it's kind of back to the same thing, Matt. If we can if we can keep access to the products so we can inspect, repair and replace, we're fine. But if you're going to bury that concrete wall behind a framed wall in your basement, yeah, you, you know, you're probably going to have to um, do a better job of water managing in a different way rather than relying upon a waterproofing on the inside of the concrete. Yeah. So like a lot of the problems we have in building science, it depends and the conditions make a real big difference. Right. Um, there is no bullet. So, there is no magic bullet for everything. Right. Yeah. It's unfortunately. Yeah. That's pretty hard to find. Um, I also have done a lot of testing on um roof vent systems so soffit to ridge you know the code has requirements for the vent area ratios and it has requirements for the depth of the vent space and i thought yeah you know i heard through bill rose so bill rose is a really well-known um building scientist but he's kind of a building science historian too Hmm. and he's gone back and looked at how we developed the vent ratios for roofs and they kind of just got made up along the way so i started to take a theatrical fogger and put it up to the uh, to the events and watch what happens to the theatrical fog as it moves through the assembly, timing how long, measuring the temperature of the roof, um, evaluating the soffit vents and the ridge vents. And I just learned an awful lot about how actual soffit to ridge um, air movement works because uh, we know more about how um attic spaces handle um soffit to ridge but we don't know as much about that you know cathedral roof where we're running a vent right on the underside or the top side of the structural sheeting um so how that air moves about through there and there's a great video you know we went to one of steve and jake's products projects um and they were using a 112 and i said you you just don't get adequate air movement with a 112 and Steve said, how do you know that? Have you tested? I thought, oh, darn. <laughs> oh, shoot. And sure enough, we put a fogger on that 112 roof. And we got uh, 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 three feet per second airflow from the soffit to the ridge in a 1 in 12. How about that? Uh, so Wow. With how much vent space are you talking? Is that like an inch and a half vent space? or uh, That's a great question because... The code requires that vent space to be one inch. Okay. Um, but Joe Re- Joe Stebrick recommends like uh, two inches for really cold climates with a lot of snow. And um, I've had people use three quarter inches, and that's worked fine. 
but I, I was asking some guys at GAF about this, and they said, hey, you know, you got to talk to this one guy. He just retired. He's been testing uh, and evaluating airflow from soffit to ridge using various depths and different wow. types of roof vents, uh, ridge vents. And uh, they actually gave me his number. And from retirement, he said, yeah, I can't believe you tracked me down. I, I really don't want to be bothered with this stuff. <laughs> but he said the sweet spot for pretty much every climate on um, every pitch of roof is an inch and a half. There you go. So, you know, the code requires one inch, but I have quite a few builders that sort of swear on just slap the two by fours down instead of a strap at, you know, a one by because that inch and a half seems to be a bit of a sweet spot. Yeah, I mean, it seems like uh, a little bit more can't hurt you, whereas if you go too thin, just, you know, using the power of, uh, you know, what seems right, you're not going to get a lot of airflow if it was a half inch or a quarter inch vent space. Yeah, and I, I do think it makes a difference if you've got stack effect driving it. So, mm -hmm. the, you know, the sun hits the roof, yep. heats up the air, and that creates the movement from soffit to ridge. But we also, of course, have a driving force of wind. I, I kind of think that um, the roofs that I tested that were only three quarters of an inch, so the, the vent space was by a piece of one by three strapping. When the temperature of the roof gets high enough, it just roars through there. Mm, good but point. with wind, it does make a big difference to have a double depth to mm. an inch and a half compared mm -hmm. to an inch and three quarters. So again, it depends. It depends on climate. It depends on roof pitch. Yep. Um, it depends on how hot the roof gets. I found very different airflows on the south side compared to the north side. Um, and I, Matt, I started the testing with a, I built an easel in my basement and had two infrared lamps with my fogger. And I, I used that to experiment before I went out. So I did like bench top testing. And then what I learned from that, I went and applied it to going and testing in the field. We tested the airflow at Steve Basics house. Huh. Um, and, and learn quite a bit. So oh, that's wild. Yeah. Fun stuff. So uh, let me change gears a little bit from your yeah. from your testing to our audience, you know, knowing our audience is mostly builders, certainly some architects, maybe some folks that are going to build their own house. When when we see as builders a new product, a new spec sheet, uh, any advice for like, you know, how do we know is this going to work or not? Or you know, what have you done over the years before you did wingnut testing uh, or maybe with the absence of wingnut testing? What what can we do to kind of uh, evaluate yeah. claims for ourselves, I guess, is really that, my broad question. That's a really good question. Um, here's where I think is the tie between, you know, uh, an educational tool like the Build Show and um, how we discover or how we learn to separate one product from another. Um, first thing is to start with the uh, instructions. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. none of us read those, but no. start with that. I start totally with their agree. installation techniques. Um, and then the next thing is um, through your sales rep, get to a technical person. Oh, that's a great idea. Yes. And, yeah. and, and the reason that's really important is because when I started to do these wingnut tests that didn't reflect laboratory conditions, so they were, you know, varying temperatures, varying substrates, varying levels of moisture. Mm -hmm. um, they said, Peter, we do that testing. We simply can't publish it. <laughs> so it's not as if the manufacturers aren't doing uh, field testing. Interesting. It's just that 
you know, because they're not done to a standard by a third party uh, lab, they, they can't report that. So it's really important that we get to the technical people because then they can share their experience with their products and with other products. That's a great. And so w this is why when Steve was talking to me about starting an educational effort like the Home Building Crossroads, I said, we, we have to have sponsors that have available technical people mm -hmm. that we can talk to about the products and um, get the straight stuff. Um, when I was working at the NHB Research Center in the early 90s, one of the problems was that manufacturers were cutting down on their service reps in the field. Mm. And so it was there was a disconnect, right? There was a disconnect between the people that were testing the products in the lab and the people that are out in the field. And so, you know, I really like to work with manufacturers that give me access to the technical people. And when I ask them a question that's uh, beyond the ask, uh, the uh, standardized testing, they can help me with uh, what conditions this material will perform under. Um, so perfect example is Rockwool. Um, I love to use Rockwool because Antoine Abelian is the technical guy and I've I've met him <laughs> and I know I can go and ask him and he'll give me the straight scoop on what kind of configurations of his products have they tested? So, Do they yeah. recommend? Do they yes. not recommend? Difference in climates? So it's so the, the beauty is that if more builders and architects go push past the salespeople to the technical staff, you will be able to find the companies that have the technical staff and the research and development to back up their products and those that don't. That is um, such a great piece of advice. That is a uh, really, really good piece of advice. A, a perfect example, Matt, is I'm I'm really big on Delmhorse moisture meters. Mm. And you know, it's a family company made in the USA. Ooh, I didn't know that. I've been to their lab and they do their own testing to calibrate their tools. Some other moisture manufacturers simply go and buy the latest Delmhorst and then take it apart and back back engineer it. Right? <laughs> Whereas, yeah, so, so, so I have a lot of fit. Now, Delmhorst moisture meters are more expensive. Yep. But they've got the technical folks that I can get access to to better understand how their products work. So that's the key thing. That's really um, good. The other thing, Matt, is, um, and this was our goal with the wingnut testing, um, two guys in Brattleboro, you know, there's not much we can do. All of our work was anecdotal. Um, we never did anything statistically significant. But if we had more and more people just testing products in the field, get more wingnuts out there, um, we can get get more data. Mm -hmm. And I talked to David DeCastro about this because um, he's got this great lab, but it's in Austin. Mm -hmm. So he's not, when he does field testing, he's not seeing conditions for really cold climates. No. So he and I actually talked about like, yeah, you know, maybe we need like a, 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 a climate three, two, four, but we also need another uh, construction durability lab in the cold climates yeah. because those conditions are different. Now it never went anywhere, but it was, uh, he was a great, uh, person to connect with. Um, cause we bounced ideas about testing off each other all the time. Love it. Um, so it's building that, you know, you've built a network for information. We just need to use the, 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 the social media structures we have 
to better learn about what other people are doing or what their experiences are with these products because they're going to mean a hell of a lot more than the standardized testing. Yeah, it's good stuff, Peter. Um, here's an example, I think, of what you're talking about uh, that I'll go to from what I mentioned earlier from Nicastro. You know, he, he did that testing, which was highly UV test. You know, they were really testing to see. The manufacturer says this can go 60 days of UV or 180 days, but what does that really mean in the field? And when I saw the results of that with all these different products, I was shocked that behind the um, covering, I think they put like hardy plank up on half the thing so that it would be in the shade, it wouldn't have any UV. The manufacturers in the South, in Texas, uh, had their products to the limit of what they said was okay, in, in air quotes there, uh, and, then, and then they were obviously testing beyond that. And what was really interesting to me was when they took that uh, off, when they took that shade device off and then looked at them later, a year or two later, some of the products that went to the manufacturer's limit looked like they had been damaged. Uh, you know, they had yeah. gotten uh, a, a sunburn, for lack of a better uh, term. And so it was really interesting in speaking to David. Uh, he said, yeah, it's really um, uh, interesting to note that some of the manufacturers are based in like Minnesota or Cleveland. Mm -hmm. And if they're testing this for UV exposure in Cleveland, there's way less radiation on the sample if they have like a backyard test than if we test it down here in Texas. So his right. David's advice to me as a fellow Texan was, you know, be cautious and probably cover before the manufacturer says, uh, because if you wait till much longer, uh, you might have overexposed the product and the product will continue to kind of have this cancer form that doesn't really go away now that it's in the shade. Uh, and so as a result, I've really gravitated towards products that can have a much longer UV exposure than not. Uh, you know, another one uh, from that test that I forgot to mention was Polygard had their uh, aluminum faced peel and stick uh, up on that board. And uh, if you just looked at your PSA testing, they have an asphaltic based uh, adhesive. And so you would think, oh, this is not going to do well in the hot sun, right? It's asphaltic based, but it had an aluminum foil facer on the front of this, which meant that it didn't take any UV exposure on the facer or the asphalt. And they used the primer like the manufacturer recommended. So years and years later, the Aluma Flash, uh, which now is UV240, still looked the same as the day it was installed. <laughs> and so the aluminum was kind of counteracting the less expensive um, asphaltic-based uh, adhesive, whereas on the other hand, Zip is using acrylic-based adhesive, which is really bomber, and the Zip definitely showed some, um, uh, some fading, but mm -hmm. otherwise didn't seem changed or didn't seem affected in its performance. And so you've got all these variables, like where in the world are you? Yeah. And for yeah. you, interesting to hear you say, you know, what's your temperature? What's your humidity? Things fail differently with different temperatures and humidities. Um, I love the idea of actually contacting the manufacturer. So maybe, maybe my advice, I'm kind of processing this out loud there, Peter. Maybe my advice based on what you said is, if you've got a product you're either using or thinking about using, instead of talking to the sales rep, see if you can find their tech line, call that tech line and say, hey, I got a tech question, and then say, hey, I'm a builder in Vermont or Minnesota, or yeah. here's my conditions. I'm thinking about using your product. 
here's the conditions I'm going to put it in. You know, can you give me any advice from a field perspective from you, from you technical person? Do you think that's, think that manufacturers would respond to that? I think that essentially they're trying to sell more product. And if more and more building professionals ask the technical questions, they're going to say, Hey, we, we got to make sure that we're, you know, responding to the, to the, to the need. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, so the more builders and remodelers and architects that want to get more tech, uh, contact, the better it is. Um, I was really, you know, surprised when, when you think about sticky stuff, because the, the, the blog series that I have on, uh, building greens, uh, website, um, which is in front of their paywall, by the way, um, it was called sticky business and it was all about <laughs> sealants and BSA tapes. But the key thing is, you know, these are complicated polymers and the, the things that really bother, uh, complicated big polymers are ultraviolet light because there's a lot of energy hitting this, uh, very complicated molecular structure. So they, they, they you know, they have a hard time with, um, with UV but they also don't like moisture content and temperature changes. So mm. you throw together those three things, which are what it's like to be out in the weather, and you're you're asking an awful lot of these complicated polymers. Yeah. Um, and you know, what do we want them to be? We want them to be UV resistant. We want them to work in the cold and the hot. We want them to work with high moisture conditions, low. Um, and we want them to put them on six different substrates. Well, you know, you talk to the chemists, the polymer chemists, and they're like, you know, there, there, there just isn't one sticky thing that does the best in all those conditions. <laughs> um, or if there is one, um, it's going to be really, really expensive. Yeah. Um, so it's been really fun to do this testing. I think the really gratifying thing was when I was working on one particular test method, we wrote it up. Um, this other guy, uh, Dave Gothier and I, um, who was in the uh, area of Southeast Vermont and, you know, was, uh, he was the president of a structural insulated panel company and they wanted to find a tape that they could use to protect their joints. Um, so he had a pretty vested interest. And the initial testing we've done was all at his facility. I'm um, working with a couple of his guys. Um, and uh, it was just so interesting to send our protocol to four different tape manufacturers thinking we were going to get shot down or hear from their lawyers or both. <laughs> and we got back from all four saying, pretty good test. Give it a, give it a whirl. How about that? So that was pretty cool. That was yeah. fantastic. Any, uh, any wingnut testing that you haven't done that you would like to uh, challenge the audience to, uh, to try themselves that we can get, get, uh, a whole uh, new generation of wingnut testers on? Is there anything in particular that you think uh, hasn't been tested or needs to be uh, explored? Oh, that's so funny because um, I essentially, when I moved from Brattleboro, Vermont to Durham, took all the wingnut stuff and sent it up to a guy named Nate Gusikoff, hmm. who's a building enclosure consultant in the Middlebury, Vermont area. And uh, I, I couldn't do the test anymore because of the you know, the different house that we have here, um, couldn't set it up in the basement. Um, and that's when we were working to get aero barrier mm. to do some field testing with us. 
because um, Nate was, in addition to a building enclosure consultant, he worked with um, Silver Maple Construction, the big big construction company in uh, sort of central Vermont. Um, and they also were an aero barrier uh, contractor. So I'd love to get some wing nut testing. And we've talked to Paul Springs about this, uh, but it's just never it's we've never been able to carry it through. But that's that's been on my list. Yeah, that's fascinating. I love it, Peter. Peter, so, so good to have you on the Build Show, man. We need to uh, we need to schedule a time to get you back again. There's so much in that deep brain of yours that we need to pick out. Um, but in the meantime, for the uh, men and women in the building industry that are listening to Peter and I now, uh, Peter is on like, what are you on, season three or four now for uh, the Unbuild It podcast? You guys have over 100 episodes, don't you? We, we just crossed 100 episodes, so we've been doing it every two weeks so that's what 26 man we're coming up on uh, our fourth year i guess how about that we're doing it for three years that's fantastic um, so the unbuild it podcast you can get it on all the major platforms but of course now they're also on build show network uh we're trying to build up our podcast platform a uh, little uh, behind the scenes for the listeners we have one or two or three others that will be uh, coming on board this year as well because uh, I think the podcast format is a terrific disseminator of information. Uh, actually, before we close this out, I, w- I am interested to hear from you, Peter. Uh, I know you're you're kind of semi-retired now, I would say. It sounds like that's correct. I know you, uh, you're no longer a professor at Yale like you were maybe a year or two ago. How, and maybe this, is, this kind of sounds self-serving. I don't mean it to be self-serving. But what are the ways that young builders, remodelers, architects, uh, can ingest building science in today's day and age. I mean, you and I, uh, or I was learning from you for years, but I was also learning from Joe Stebrick, from buildingscience.com, from buildinggreen.com, uh, from fine home building, from reading Journal of Light Construction. Uh, and, you know, it seems like today people are moving towards video, towards podcasts. Any yeah. other good resources that you can recommend for good building science education? It's a great question. Um, when I did the two, first two-day building uh, building science training that we developed for Southern Vermont, you know, a whole bunch of local architects and builders at the end of the second day said, we are so freaking angry at you <laughs> because all you've done is make us terrified to do anything. <laughs> um, and so what came out of that, Matt, was we formed a builder's guild. How about that? And it, it met for once a month, three hours. Wow. And the idea was, um, this is a quote from Sam Levinson, a journalist in the 20s and 30s, 1920s and 30s. He said, um, you must learn from the mistakes of others. Mm. You cannot possibly live long enough to make them all yourself. Amen. So the I think the key is, in addition to all the great ways you can get information online, Join a local building group. Start a local building group because um, even I, whose my full time job was to go look for building mistakes, I I learned so much from those three hour once a month sessions Mm -hmm. where people brought in their problems and collectively, you know, 20, 30, 40 of us, we could learn a hell of a lot more than just one of us working alone. Boy, that's for sure. So so I would say that. The, the way to really learn about what happens in the field with products and the systems is uh, use your numbers. Yes. Right? Yes. Because um, if you're working by yourself, 
you, you're just not going to learn fast enough. Yeah, and and learn from the wisdom of your elders, right? I mean, I, that's that's a hundred percent my story. I've learned so much from that generation of builders that are uh, 10, 15, 20 years above me. I'm trying to pass that down. I've made a ton of mistakes. I've had lawsuits. I've had uh, mold problems. <laughs> I've had water problems. And so I always try and pass down those mistakes. And that's really the genesis of the build show originally when I started shooting it in 2008 was uh, I felt like all the magazines and all the stuff I was reading was very kind of north and east based. And there wasn't enough information on how to build a really good house in the south. And so I started these videos to say, well, here's what I'm learning about building in the south. Let me let me pass on this knowledge that I've learned. Now you fast forward and we've got 15 contributors, including our buddies, Steve and Jake, that are shooting videos on a weekly basis. You've got the Unbuild It podcast. The three of you guys probably have over 100 years of experience between the three of you uh, that you're passing on. You've made plenty of mistakes and you're not afraid to share them. So, Peter, on behalf of the industry, I just want to say thank you so much for your contributions. Uh, You have dedicated your life to sharing those uh, pieces of wisdom with us and and my generation of builders thanks you so much for for your service my friend and and uh you guys if you're not currently subscribing to the unbuilded podcast you absolutely need to go over and click subscribe on that and and listen to the wisdom that these three are putting out on on a bi-weekly basis it's fantastic and by the way now they have a video version so if you want to see peter's uh handsome face as long as well as uh, Steve and Jake's less handsome, but but roughly handsome faces. Uh, you can actually see it from the Build Show Studios, which is actually the Rockwell Studios uh, here in Austin, Texas. Peter, thank you so much. I really appreciate it, my friend. Matt, it's been a pleasure. Look forward to doing it again sometime. For sure. For sure. Guys, hit that subscribe button if you're not currently a subscriber. Go check out the Unbuild It podcast. With that being said, follow us on TikTok or Instagram. Otherwise, we'll see you next time. Oh! Build Show Podcast.